This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Syria edges closer towards civil war, but what can the international community do about it? A stark warning about the Taliban's plans during NATO's exit from Afghanistan. It is in their interest, really, to put forward the proposal that NATO are retreating rather than withdrawing. And I fear that we'll see an increasing use of the IED. And the Queen celebrates 60 years as head of the armed forces. The rebel Free Syrian Army is threatening to abandon its commitment to the international peace process unless the government withdraws all its forces by tomorrow lunchtime. A spokesman said the massacre in the town of Hula last Friday showed the peace plan had failed. Meanwhile, the international community continues to condemn the regime. In Istanbul, the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon warned that the massacres of civilians could plunge Syria into a catastrophic civil war. Well, I'm joined by former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett, as well as BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Lord Dannett, the situation in Syria, dire, obviously. Do you think it's in danger of becoming a full-on civil war? Well, there's always a danger of that. The big issue is when President Assad will go, because go he will and go he must. I think the opposition in Syria have been remarkable at the degree of punishment which they've taken from his government forces, but they've still kept their pressure up on him. And that's what the international community has got to do as well, to keep up huge pressure on him, to make it quite clear that he has no future, either as a ruler of a country like Syria, or really as a free person in the world. He has done things which will definitely put him in the dock at the International Criminal Court, and the sooner he goes, the better for his country, and he's got to realise that. You talk about Britain keeping up the international pressure. What nature should that pressure take? I think first and foremost we must keep the pressure up as a member of the permanent member of the Security Council, the pressure in the Security Council, particularly to encourage Russia to harden its line even further. Even today it's being reported that Russia is once again taking somewhat of an ambivalent approach to all this because President Assad in the past has often taken a lot of comfort from the Russian position. You know, he's not worried too much about what the West has thought because he's had powerful friends in the East and in Russia. So we've got to work hard on the Russians to really strengthen their position and also encourage the opposition to become more organised, become more focused, so that they have a greater chance of exerting uh, organised and coherent pressure on the regime. And what about military action? If you were the Chief of the Defence Staff, what would you be advising ministers to do? I'd be advising very clearly that this is not something for us to get um, involved in, not to intervene in, in a military sense, at this moment. The only circumstances in which I could see us possibly being involved in some form of intervention would be if there had been an agreement that President Assad was to go and there was therefore a case for an international force to oversee the transition of power from the current government uh, to the, the new government based on what is currently the opposition. But the key to that really is an internal change and with the attitude of the Syrian army and the Syrian armed forces. If they decide to switch their allegiance away from President Assad, then I don't think there'll be a need for an international intervention. I certainly wouldn't make an uninvited um, intervention in the same way that we did in Iraq in 2003. Christopher Lee, uh, the situation is very different from the situation in Libya. 
are quite different. I mean, it's it's far more complex. The the, the role is quite different. Um, if you intervene, you can do it this way. You can do it uh, through the United Nations. You put in the United Nations peacekeeping force. Well, there is no peace to keep, and also the the government in charge to some extent. You have to go at their bequest to do that. You can then have a peace enforcement, and that is that there is a peace, uh, but you send lots of troops, and you're probably talking about certainly a division side, well, let's say 10, 11,000 troops, and then you've got to have sort of 20 or 30,000 troops to sort of back that up, uh, so, so forth. Or you have the direct in, in, intervention, which we had, for example, in Libya. That will not work here. Or you have a direct invasion. You can't do that. And don't forget, once you put boots on the ground, I say this in front of the general, but he'll he'll back me up, I'm sure. Once you put boots on the ground, how do you get them out? Uh, how do you reinforce them? What is your authority for doing so? It has to be a multinational force. Who runs it? Can you work it together? It is a quagmire. It's a quagmire they're not getting into. If there were to be any support of the Free Syrian Army, is it clear yet what a, that is actually made up of? Is it organised enough? Do we know who they are? Well, we know that uh, Qasim Sadadin is the leader uh, supposedly the leader of the, of, of the Free Army. And it's he who is making, for example, yesterday he is saying that you've got 48 hours, you, uh, the, the government, to, to comply with the ceasefire agreements, but also you must agree to go, etc. That's not going to happen. But the difficulty is there's one thing which we tend not to talk about because we don't know the answer to this. Is this opposition that we, we, we tacitly support... Is it the majority of view in Syria? Now, everybody would say, well, yes, of course it is. But go to, go to somewhere like Damascus. Is it the, uh, is it the majority view? And, that, and go to Aleppo, which is the largest city in, in, in Damascus. That's important. Now, I think Lord Dannett was talking about the, the, the Russians and getting them on board you know, through the Security Council. Fascinating that the new president, or president once again, President Putin, avoided going to the G8 summit in America. Um, he is avoiding going to another meeting here in London. He is going to Paris tomorrow, and they're going to try and lobby him in Paris tomorrow to start up a conference on Syria in Moscow. But he's going, uh, he hasn't been going to these places because he's been trying to avoid the confrontation until he understands what the positions are with people like Obama, etc. And if you want to go back to that point, should we actually go in boots on the ground stuff? Who says we're not going to do it? Obama says, President Obama says it. No, President Obama says, says no, nobody else is going to do it. Lord Dunnett, when you look at this situation in Syria at the moment from the sidelines, I know you, you're driven very much by your, by your own high sense of, of morality. Is it not frustrating that you watch this for so long without any solution that stops the massacres that we've seen? It is frustrating, of course, and one has to give huge... Um recognition to the Syrian opposition who, as I said earlier, have taken so much punishment yet still continue their opposition. But all that said, uh, whereas we made an indirect intervention in Libya and that helped the Libyans on the ground arrive at a Libyan solution for Libya, uh, it's a very different thing to thinking about making an intervention, a full-scale intervention ourselves into Syria. If we've learnt one lesson from Iraq and Afghanistan in the recent last 10 years, it's that we put our boots uh, on Islamic soil, I think with great caution in future. Because even if the cause might be right, 
it's very easy for our motivation to be turned around and our very presence there become more of the problem than the solution that it's supposed to be. So this has got to be uh, a Syrian-worked internal solution. But the more that um, President Assad does and things like the massacre a few days ago absolutely condemn him to the dock, both internally and internationally and in the history books. Can any comparisons be made at all with what happened in, during the Balkans war? I think the only use, well, there are several comparisons you could make, but I guess time is short. I think the most useful comparison is to remember that our early intervention was as a result of United Nations Security Council resolution, a series of them, that placed a large UN so-called peacekeeping force uh, in Bosnia. That was effective up to a point, but the mandate was weak. When the parties had agreed the Dayton Peace Agreement, that was when the mission became a NATO mission with a much tougher, much stronger mandate, and we were able then to help that country away from war into something approaching a peace process. Only if that was to happen in Syria and the parties were to agree a change of power, then would it be justifiable to consider putting an intervention force in? But I don't see it happening because I don't see Assad agreeing willingly to go. This is going to come about through pressure from the opposition and I salute their determination to do this. Christopher Lee. Just, uh, just one complication which we can see. Uh, uh, Hula, the massacre, who carried it out? Shabihar militia. Shabihar, it's Arabic for ghosts. Uh, etc. It's coming clear that that militia attacked one extended family. That sh starts to show the complications. What we want to know who has ordered it. If we ever understand why it happened, not the mechanics, but why it happened, then we begin to understand something else about what's going on in the Assad regime. And that's why um, people are more and more understanding that possibly the solution to Syria is going to come internally, not necessarily from the opposition, but perhaps from a coup d'etat. Lord Dunnett. I completely agree with that. Um, as we've said so many times in recent conflicts, the Afghan solution has got to be one the Afghans arrive at, essentially. The same with the Iraqis, the same with the Libyans, and this one particularly in Syria. Syria is a very complex society. In fact, all these countries are. Libya was a very complex society. Syria is an ancient society, it's a complex society, and what Christopher has said there about the what we know and what we don't know about that massacre just underlines the complexity of the issue. All right, Lord Dannett, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, what's Russia's problem with missile defence? And we'll look at the close relationship between the monarch and the military as the Queen celebrates her Diamond Jubilee. PFBS Sit rep. As British troops head towards a withdrawal from Afghanistan, a former senior bomb disposal officer has issued a grim warning. Former Principal Ammunition Technical Officer Colonel Bob Seddon says we should expect an increase in suicide bombings aimed at mass casualties. He told BFBS reporter Will Inglis the Taliban are watching every step of the exit strategy with interest. My real concern about Afghanistan is, is that we are... Uh, facing uh, an enemy in Afghanistan, the Taliban, that are resourceful. They pay very close attention to, to how we adopt our tactics and counter-ID approaches. And they will seek to make sure that uh, coalition forces, the NATO forces in Afghanistan, are on the back foot right through the uh, withdrawal uh, process. They know that uh, NATO forces are going to withdraw. There is a, there's a hard deadline that's been uh, announced. Uh, and it is in their interest, really, to... Uh, put forward the, uh, the proposal that NATO are retreating ra uh, rather than withdrawing. And I fear that we'll see uh, an increasing use of the IED 
uh, and some forms of IED attack are, are, are a particular concern. Because at the moment, Taliban IEDs tend to be more about perhaps disrupting NATO's day-to-day job rather than deliberately attempting to inflict mass casualties. Are you suggesting that their tactics could change then? I think we're already seeing a change in tactics. We've seen some very high-profile attacks mounted, of course, in Kabul. Uh, we've seen the precision use of the, the suicide IED to attack high-value targets. And I think we need to be really concerned uh, about the use of the suicide IED uh, and its ability to inflict mass casualties, really, uh, as we pull out of Afghanistan. Of course, it was just last week that we saw uh, a single suicide IED attack in the Yemen that caused over 95 uh, casualties. That's 95 soldiers killed by a single suicide IED attack. So it's those high-profile attacks that we need to be concerned about, and we certainly need to be on our guard. Just because we're leaving Afghanistan doesn't mean to say we're not vulnerable. You resigned your commission famously citing uh, a historic lack of investment causing pressure on um, ATOs, uh, bomb disposal experts in the British Army. Do you worry that uh, after Afghanistan, um, ATOs may again become less high profile and that that problem of underinvestment, of, of not taking the threat seriously enough, may return? I'm concerned that uh, we don't have a particularly balanced defence programme now. I don't think anyone in their right mind now will, will cut corners in the counter-IED field. And I think it is very unlikely that we'll see reductions in, in counter-IED capability. What does concern me, though, is that in the recent uh, reductions in, in defence expenditure, is we've see, seen some, some critical capabilities go to the wire, and these capabilities may be required in future conflicts. It probably won't be the IED uh, that, uh, that causes casualties in, in future, but perhaps the lack of a maritime patrol aircraft or carrier strike in the next five years would cause us problems. So it's the short-term uh, short effect, really, of cuts and the long-term implications of those that causes me concern. And uh, just finally, I mean, we, we've spent so much money uh, as what are known as urgent operational requirements to mitigate the IED threat. You know, vast fleets of um, new vehicles, which really there isn't the budget to, to retain all of. Um, do you worry that, I mean, to some extent, therefore, some of the counter-IED lessons could be lost in time? I'm very concerned that some of the hard-won lessons uh, in terms of counter-IED will be lost. Uh, as we pull out of Afghanistan. What we need to do is institutionalise that experience. We need to ensure that our future systems are, are designed with the IED in mind. There's no point in developing a range of armoured fighting vehicles that aren't capable of operating in a, an IED-rich environment. So the future sort of scout vehicles, the future recce vehicles, our future main battle tanks must be designed uh, with the IED threat in mind. If we don't, we, we are in danger of bringing into service systems that won't be capable of operating in these complex environments. That was Colonel Bob Seddon talking to BFBS reporter Will Inglis. More than 20 years since the end of the Cold War, why can't Russia and NATO quite trust each other? NATO's desire to plough on with missile defence shield to protect allies from any strike by Iran or others have consistently alarmed Moscow. Russia's top general has even talked of a preemptive strike on the designated missile defence sites in Poland and Romania. Well, missile defence has been the subject of a conference at the Royal United Services Institute this week. Michael Codner led the conference and joins us now. Hello, Michael. Um, let's go back to basics. Just explain exactly what NATO's Missile Defence Shield is and how it's intended to work. Well, the Missile Defence Shield, which was uh, introduced by the Obama administration, was a bit different from what the Bush administration had planned. That was to have land sites, in particularly in um, 
in Poland and the Czech Republic. The Obama scheme called the European Phased Adaptive Approach was basically to have the missiles that will be shooting down any nuclear ballistic missiles um, would be in the early phases anyhow will be based at sea uh, using the American Aegis cruisers and other ships that can carry them. Uh, but they still need radars ashore and under the new scheme the radars will be in Romania and uh, and in Turkey and there have been signed agreements with both um, Turkey and Romania for the radars to be set up. And Russia's main problem with it is that it would undermine its nuclear deterrence, is that right? Uh, Yes, yes indeed, and uh, th this does go back to the Cold War and the latter stages of the Cold War when uh, one of the initiatives by the Reagan administration, the Strategic Defense Initiative, actually was to bankrupt, America, uh, bankrupt uh, Russia, the Soviet Union in particular, by high technology initiatives, and one of them was to start a missile defense program, which Russia would, in its response, would not be able to afford. and. Uh, so the economic collapse uh, in the Soviet Union was one of the instigators of the end of the Cold War. And so there's quite a lot of symbolic baggage in all of this. But the, the, the Russian problem, yes, is that they see this not what NATO says and what the Americans say, specifically against uh, threats by emergent nations like Iran and occasional and relatively modest short-range threats in the early stages anyhow, um, that's what the phased adaptive approach is meant to deal with, and particularly, obviously, Iran at the moment, but other countries possibly. Um, but the Russians see it as um, as uh, uh, still focused against them, which means that they themselves will have to develop better missile, uh, ballistic missile capabilities in order to avoid um, the fact that some of them could be shoot, shot down. The phased adaptive approach couldn't cope with the Russian, uh, uh, Russian scale um, in, in any way at all which is absolutely vast, and you would never have that sort of uh, protection, certainly not for very many years. Christopher, is there more to Russia's problem with this uh, prospective missile defence shield than, than is obvious? i tell you what, 4th of October um, 1957, which was the launch of the first strategic rocket, it was the beginning of intercontinental ballistic missilery, and both sides then, one of the first things they thought about uh, was how do you stop a missile bringing a warhead down upon America or Russia or whatever. And so the concept of an anti-ballistic missile defense has been there since then, really, the idea, can we do it? Where we've got to now, and Michael makes a good point about uh, these missiles that, or missile defenses that are going into, in, into continental Europe, is that they're not designed to take out and the Russians know this, to take out a, let's say, a ballistic missile, a strategic ballistic missile, say, an, an ICBM of the, old, of, of the old style. It is the medium range, the shorter range, the sort of thing that you would have to try and protect Europe for. It also, if necessary, protect Russia, because the Russians don't believe that, but there you are. But every time the Russians say, oh, you know, you're, you're against us, the Americans say, well, hang on, what we really want to do, because it's an American concept, nobody else has got technology to do it. Uh, what we really want to do is protect ourselves in case the Iranians launch something at, at Europe, so anywhere in Europe. But it's not just that. If you think ahead, and you've got to think ahead, you've got to second guess who your enemy might be, what delivery systems they might have, what they might have in 10 years' time, not what they've got now. What they've got now is easy to do 
you can almost just look up Jains and find out. Or, of course, I could go to the RUSI and ask them, and you will find out. But the point is, you've got to think ahead. This is what this so-called missile shield is all about. And think, Russia, if at the end of the Cold War it had gone slightly the other way, and the Russians had started putting missile defences right in our back garden, as the Russians see this, we get nervous. UK defence budget would have been tripled instead of cut in half. Michael Codner, um, how important is it that Russia and NATO do agree on how to move forward, and, and how likely is it that they will? Where do you think they may be able to agree? Well, uh, one of the problems is that uh, what Russia has asked for, uh, NATO and the Americans have asked for cooperation so we can share information so the Russians know exactly what NATO is doing in every detail. They have been watching uh, um, preparations and exercises and all of that. But what the Russians have asked for is something legal that, um, that actually uh, limits the extent of NATO's missile defence uh, capabilities and the Americans are not prepared to... to um, to provide that. Uh, the, the, the Russians do have some sort of a point because at the end of the day, if you ask um, an American um, uh, official uh, what will happen after the next election, presidential elections, will there be any change in American policy? The answer is he, I mean, he can't answer that because he just doesn't know what the next president might do, whoever that might be. Uh, and so uh, you can see why the Russians want some formal assurance. Mm. The problem with a formal assurance is that the anti ballistic missile treaty was uh, reneged by the Bush administration that's between Russia and America which uh, which um, prevented too much um, missile defense being created so mutually assured destruction remained in place that is the sort of rule that both sides have got so much that neither would ever dream of using it um, uh, but um, that was reneged by the Bush administration so if any right. administration was to do something legal, then equally a new administration come in and just renege it again. Oh. So uh, they don't get any security out of that. All right. Michael Codner from the Royal United yeah. Services Institute. I'm sure more for you to talk about this time next year at your conference <laughs> then. Thank you yeah. for your time. Okay, then. By this time 30 years ago, some of the most significant events of the Falklands War had already taken place. Five British ships had already been sunk, the British forces who would go on to liberate the islands had landed, and the Battle of Goose Green had taken place. The flagship of the fleet which took part in the amphibious landings was HMS Fearless. On board was a man who later became Commander British Forces South Atlantic Islands, Commodore Philip Thickness. Well, I'm serving in HMS Fearless, uh, and we are in San Carlos Water, which the press... Um, comes called Bomb Alley, uh, and we have endured um, several days of, of um, endless air raids, it seems. I'm sure they weren't, but you know, that's the memory. Uh, and there are lulls when the weather's bad ashore or with us when we get, when we get a break. But um, still, a lot of air activity going on, uh, and meantime trying to move troops and uh, stores ashore to support the battle that's beginning to be fought from ashore and this breakout from San Carlos which obviously starts with with Goose Green and then develops as as the Marines set off on the northern route to Teal Inlet. At the time was there ever any doubt as to whether or not this mission would work? Did you ever get the sense that people were being sent on a suicide mission? Definitely not a suicide mission. I think at the end of the first day on the 21st in San Carlos. I suspect that many of us probably had one or two worrying moments because it had been a hell of a day and you know the scene around the water after the final wave of air raids 
was quite depressing. You know, there was um, ardent outside burning and you could see the smoke and we had on the inside uh, Antrim, I think a couple of the LSLs had been hit, certainly one or two of the frigates had been hit and, and you know, carnage all over the place. And I think that evening, I certainly uh, wasn't sure, but amazingly, the next day, the weather's bad on the mainland in Argentina, and so we're given a, uh, a break. And I think just that day allowed us to consolidate, patch up our wounds, get an enormous amount of stuff and people ashore. And I think by the evening of the 22nd, many more people were far more happy that actually we were going to do this thing. And a lot of the time people concentrate on what's going on on the land. Tell me a bit more about the maritime campaign because there are more than a hundred ships involved, weren't there? And yes, there's this enormous sea campaign going on with you know, the amphibious force in and around San Carlos with the amphibious shipping inside and then a, a layer of frigates and destroyers outside and to the sea north and south as radar pickets you know, where poor old Sheffield had been and then you know, where, where Coventry and Broadsword were. And then further out, you know, there's this uh, train of merchant navy ships waiting to bring things in, to be brought in by the amphibious staff at the right moment. And then at sea uh, is Admiral Woodard and the carriers you know, maintaining air cover over us on the islands, but at the same time having to keep the carriers sufficiently far away that they are never seriously at risk. So I suspect he feels if, if one of those is hit, we're in real trouble and there's, so there's a great tension you know, even as a young officer one sensed it what's going on ashore in San Carlos and out in the deep ocean. And with the the benefit of, of 30 years of history now when you look back at that what, what do you think about your time during the Falcons conflict how do you look back on the whole campaign? Well I think it doesn't sound too trite with enormous pride because um, we were very well trained and we in HMS Phyllis had come from an exercise in the Arctic Circle with our Royal Marines. We knew what we were doing. Um, we did it and you know Admiral Leach was, was right. If, if we hadn't done this thing we would have been a lesser country whose word would have counted for less. I mean, he was absolutely on it uh, with that and, and you know we proved that uh, Navy Royal Marines and Parachute Regiment could do this sort of stuff. Of course, you went back to the Falklands because you were then commander of British forces in the South Atlantic. What did you take with you from your experience of the war when you went back, and how did that help you? It, it helped enormously, not least, I think, um, with the islanders who recognised um, a veteran, and, it, and it, you know, it was a great privilege to be able to go back and do it. I knew what had gone on. I knew what we were there to do, which was to, was to maintain this very effective deterrent operation that's been going on now for 30 years and will go on for many more and and because of I think you know my personal history and the brilliant ship I'd, I'd served in I knew the standard that we had to set and maintain throughout the time. Must have been difficult to leave when I you did. I loved it down there. I hated leaving. That was Commodore Philip Thickness talking to me about his memories of the Falklands conflict. This is BFBS SIGREP this weekend we'll see the Queen celebrate her Diamond Jubilee with all the pomp and ceremony expected of Britain's monarchy. The Queen, as sovereign, is head of the armed forces. She's also the wife, mother and grandmother of individuals who've either served or are currently serving in the armed forces. Christopher, has having close relatives um, serving help her understand the military? 
I think the monarchs always, if they're not understood the military, the monarchs always been involved in the military. After all, you know, go, why, why is that exactly? Well, because if you if you work out, go back to the Saxons. It was the monarch who led the charges, um, and you know did all the fighting. In in the last monarch to lead uh, soldiers into a fight was in 1740 something, or and that was George the Second. So that's always been. But if you look at her immediate family, the Windsors, if you like, and you had they've all been. In the services, obviously, Prince Philip, a uh, very, very good naval officer, uh, two of her sons in the Navy, uh, one of her sons briefly in, in, in the Royal Marines. Uh, her father had a quite a distinguished time in, in the services and also was one of the first people to ever wore, wear a Royal Air Force uniform. His father, George V, was in the Navy. Um, they served at uh, Battle of Jutland. In, in, in the First World War. So they've done the wars as well. They're not just sort of, uh, uh, sort of, sort of toy, toy soldiers and sailors, and I think that's, that's rather important. Indeed, and the army and the RAF have to swear an oath of allegiance to the monarchy on enlistment. The Royal Navy, not so. Why uh, is that? Well, is that it's, right? That's not quite true. And it, what, it's, what is the it, it, is, it says it is. I mean, for example, if you get a commission, it, 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 the Queen signs it. I think, well, it goes back, you see, if, if you like, it goes back to Alfred the Great, then Henry VIII. Monarch's always been assured that the Navy is her Navy, her Majesty's ship, you see. And it's part of it. Mm. And the historical context that we were talking about just now, uh, the Queen, the only person to declare war and peace, why is that exactly? Is it because well, of that's the, the original? No, that's not because you, that's not because she owns all the sailor soldiers and airmen. Um, that is because it has to be signed, a prerogative or, or declaration has to be actually signed uh, as well. That's very, very important to understand that. That's the constitutional position of a, of a constitutional monarch. And your final thought for this week. Oh, well, I was going through some letters from my old grandpa, yeah. And in 1912, uh, sorry, yeah, 1912, that's exactly 100 years ago, today, today, this Thursday, he was in New York, and he'd been in New York for some time. And he was saying, ah, oh, all the problems in the Middle East, in Aleppo, uh, in, in what they call the Palestine places, there's always trouble, there's trouble everywhere, isn't there? But the biggest problem for grandpa the waiters were on strike in New York. <laughs> and this is what really exercised him. And I laughed at it. You know, he couldn't get a decent, decent meal at Knickerbocker. But there's one thing. It reminds us that domestic politics in an election year in America is always the most important. And there we must leave it. Thanks for all our guests this week for our time. Thanks for, your, for listening. And we'll be back same time next week. And bye-bye for now.